Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, it's New Year's Eve, and I just had a great lunch with one of my listeners and friends and one of the people I've interviewed before, Dan Culpepper. Dan's out on his annual trip to Snowbird, and he sent me a quick message saying, I'll be up here, let's get together for lunch. So I drove up to Snowbird, went to lunch, didn't go skiing, it would have been a great day to go skiing. It was blue sky, and we've had quite a bit of snow in Salt Lake City this winter. In fact, right now in the valley, we have started the nasty winter inversions in Salt Lake. Salt Lake's a great place to live, except for the inversions in the winter. And actually, they have some bad smog in the summer, too. We're in a valley, and up in the mountains, it's nice and beautiful and clear and actually warmer than the city. You know, that's... Part of the cost of living here is having to put up with these. Now, when we eventually move up to our summer home and live there year-round, we'll be out of this nasty smog and inversion year-round. But it'll be colder up there in the winter. I did get my foundation and footings. Poor Dan asked me about that. I guess I hadn't reported on the podcast lately the progress on my addition to the summer home. But I finally got a building permit (laughs) after the building season was over. And I was able to get a contractor up there. We were able to pour the footings and the foundation and backfill. And it's all ready to go for next spring when we will start framing it up. I hope to start framing in April and have it up by the middle of June. That's about all we'll do. We'll put up, we will put up the framing. We will put on the roof. We'll put on the doors and windows. And that's probably about all I'm going to spend money on this year. I like to pay for things as I go along. And that will pretty much eat up the money I've got set aside for uh, the summer home this year. Next year, we'll start doing the other stuff, the electricity, the insulation, all the stuff inside the house. It's expensive and takes time and money. So today I've got an interview with John Fulweiler. John Fulweiler is a maritime or admiralty attorney, and we're going to be talking about maritime law. And some of the things that you as a sailor need to understand and be aware of just so that you're informed and don't do stupid things. Before we get to that, let me do my quick advertisement. If you are studying for the American Sailing Association ASA 101, 103, or 104, I have some audio lessons to help you prepare for the written portion of the exam. I cannot help you prepare for the the on-the-water exam. You've got to get on the water and actually sail to do that. You cannot learn to sail by reading a book. You need to get on the water and learn. You're going to make plenty of mistakes. I always recommend people learn by getting on a racing crew because you're going to make all your mistakes in a short period of time at somebody else's expense. So get on a racing crew if you want to learn to sail. If you are just getting into sailing, if you're just starting to listen to this podcast, it's something that entices you. Let me suggest that you buy my first audiobook, the uh, Lessons for the ASA 101 exam. That'll teach you a lot of the terminology. And the first thing you're going to notice if you get on a boat without understanding the terminology is it's going to sound like a foreign language. So get the terminology down and you'll be a lot farther ahead when you actually get on a boat and start sailing. Before we get on to the interview, I want to ask you to do me a favor. Would you please go into the iTunes podcast directory and write a comment on this podcast and give me a thumbs up. I haven't had many in quite a while. It's been a month or so since anybody's written a comment and I do read those comments and I really appreciate the comments and the reviews I get in the iTunes directory. If you do that for me, I'd really appreciate it. Secondly, tell your friends that are sailors about the podcast. And last If you have some suggestions for future episodes, let me know. I got some suggestions from Jack Andrews 
about some people to interview, and we'll be interviewing them in the next year. I have some other interviews in the can already, and I look forward to a, a new year, a great new year. We will break 100 podcasts in 2016. Each podcast represents a lot of time invested on my part, and I hope you're enjoying them. And I guess a lot of what I get out of this podcast is the comments that I get from listeners and the occasional listener that comes to town and I go skiing with or go to lunch with. So if you're ever in Salt Lake, drop me a note. We'll get together. I'm not really a cyber person. I'm not going to build relationships with you in Twitter or on Facebook. Me, I'm a real person. And I deal with real people. And if you're in town, let's get together. Talk. Get to know each other. All right. Thanks a lot. Let's get on to the interview with John. Today, we've got a great interview scheduled. Uh, we're going to entertain and educate on admiralty or maritime law. I have John K. Fulweiler, who's an admiralty lawyer, or I call a maritime lawyer, headquartered in Newport, Rhode Island, right in the heart of some serious yachting areas. So I'm going to read from the bio on your website, John. Formerly a partner in New York law firm, John Fulweiler graduated from the University of Rhode Island with a marine affairs degree and the University of Arkansas at Little Rock School of Law, in addition to being recognized by the Maritime Law Association as a proctor in admiralty. He is a licensed merchant mariner and served as a staff captain with a New England towing and salvage firm prior to law school. Now, it goes on and tells us about your areas of practice, but let's talk about you being a captain. Let's talk about your past history, your merchant mariner license. <laughs> well, thank you for that introduction. Yeah, no, I, uh, I think that's what got the, uh, a bug in me, I guess, for the salt water and such, uh, was... Um, um, you know, I, I worked as, a, as the proverbial uh, dock boy pumping gas at a marina uh, when I was fairly young. And then, uh, you know, ne the natural chain of command there is the launch driver. So you want to learn how to drive launch and, and, and get your launch license. And then I did that. And then um, the next progression was there were guys zipping around in pretty fancy boats that had a lot of horsepower and went really fast that were doing this. Uh, marine rescue type work that was the early vestiges of the CETO and Boat US um, uh, programs that you have out there now. And so I upped my license and, and went to work for them and, and ultimately paid for college and law school doing that. So you're a maritime attorney. What areas do you specialize in? Well, I do, you know, I do principally uh, maritime law, and that's what I've done my entire legal career now going on I don't know, 16, 17 years now. I, um, and, and in that, in that arena, I, I have handled uh, just about every type of maritime claim uh, issue you could come up with um, um, that you would find in the maritime treatise. There are always issues in the law, but the, 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 the ones you'll open a maritime uh, law book, um, I've probably seen at least once uh, every issue that's in there. And that's because I had the good fortune of working at a, a fairly good-sized maritime law firm in New York. And there was just a lot of volume, and you got an opportunity to see a lot of different things. And I think having done that, um, it gave me a really good perspective on um, a lot of different – this is – I'm going to make this analogy seas, you know. So, yes, yeah, I've seen a lot of different sea conditions if you can compare that to the law. And, um, um, and as, as, as a result, I, uh, I, you know, I, I think that that puts you in a fairly good position to, to – to, try to help a, a client that walks through the door with a maritime issue. And then nowadays what I specialize in, to, to use your phrasing, is you know, I, I do a fair bit of – I don't represent any insurance companies. Let's just put it that way. Um, and so in, in that um, position, I, I, I really help vessel owners, vessel crew um, um, in, in obtaining remedies. And whether that's commercially, um, recreationally, um, whether you've been injured on a cruise line or what have you, um, I sort of cover the gamut. I don't do a lot of cargo, marine cargo work anymore, um, and that's just a product of um, you know not not really liking that work that much. But so, John, I once owned a, a a brine shrimp business on the Great Salt Lake, and we had a fleet of about four boats out there. And it's an inland lake. Would 
maritime law, international maritime law, or U.S. maritime law, apply on a state lake like that? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And so uh, as a preface and to sound lawyerly, anything I say today with respect to the law is clearly not a legal opinion. So this is just, we're just chatting today. We're just chatting, right? This is just general information. Nobody's going to rely on your advice here. Exactly. (laughs) Always go talk to your own attorney. This is like you you and I talking at the bar over a beer or something. And so, yeah, and so typically, um, you know, whether admiralty law will apply um, is an issue of locality and uh, nexus to maritime commerce. And uh, in your scenario with a totally... Uh, with a st- with an inland body of water that doesn't, uh, let's just assume it maybe it does, but it doesn't. Um, it's totally within one state. It doesn't. Uh, it's not cross jurisdictional. You can't carry on commerce in between states on it. Then it would likely not be subject to federal admiralty law. It would probably just be subject to state law. If you could conduct commerce on it and it was between states, you could move between states on it. Uh, then there would probably start to begin argument. To, uh, to have you, you begin to have arguments that would support a, a federal maritime law jurisdiction uh, for for that for that locale. Um, these the issue of admiralty jurisdiction you would think would have been unfolded neatly um, at this juncture in, in what is a very old body of law. It hasn't been, and so you know there's always new developments and new quirks. Uh, but that's the uh, that's the nickel response from this admiralty attorney. So my podcast deals with sailing in the Mediterranean, and so a lot of the people that listen to this either are sailing overseas or have aspirations of sailing overseas. How does maritime law, as a U.S. documented vessel, is if as I'm sailing in the Mediterranean in Turkey and Greece, am I do I follow un, fall under U.S. maritime law, or it, would it be of the country where I'm where I'm sailing? Is is how how would that affect me? Well. You know, the, uh, again, you'd like to think that given the age of maritime law that, that you, you'd have an easy, clean answer to, to that question. Um, and, and the best I can respond is that you would have um, two considerations. The law of the flag of the vessel, um, presumably U.S., and the law of the jurisdiction in which the vessel is, is operating at the time of the incident or what have you. Uh, those would be the two areas that you'd have to look at. Um, and, and so, um, you know, for instance, when uh, the cruise ship uh, ran aground in Italy, um, you had, uh, this is the one that where the fellow apparently wanted to, to get closer to wave to somebody, and I'm paraphrasing, but uh, um, when that vessel went aground, there were, uh, I believe, a fair number of U.S. Um, residents who were passengers aboard it. And uh, the issue was, people asked me, "Well, well, don't you want their claims? Don't you know? You know, those are good cases, right?" Well, uh, maybe in Italy, but but not not in the U.S. because those claims would would have had to have been brought um, in Italy based on uh, a number of factors, including um, the uh, passenger ticket contract that they were um, they were sailing under. But anyway, I don't want to get too a field of your question. So the the answer is. You look at the yacht's flag and the the law of the jurisdiction where the vessel's located. Probably my understanding then is, is even though it's a U.S. flag, you would probably, let's say if I had a collision, let's say in Greece, I would be going to the Greek courts, the maritime courts in Greece or in, in Turkey or something along those lines. Uh, I don't know if that's the case or not, but let that's me. That's a fair. That's a fair assumption. Okay, now let's let's get on to uh, what can. Uh, I do to protect myself when I have guests on my boat. Uh, I've I've had my guests who are non-paying guests usually sign a a waiver of liability, saying, "Hey, you know, you're going sailing. There's a lot of risk, known and unknown risks in sailing, and you know, you hold me harmless." I've been told that you can't waive away rights like that, but what can a, a captain or an owner of a boat do? try to protect themselves in our litigious society that we have? Well, no, it's a, it's a, great, um, it's a great question. And, and as a sailboat owner myself, it's one I've, I've considered as well. And I think um, the first two items um, that, that, that I think any prudent skipper should be uh, thinking about is the first, run a ship-shaped vessel. 
I mean, that it sounds obvious, but you know, don't you know if 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 there are safety lines that that need to be um, renewed, renew them. Uh, uh, you know, etc. Et, et uh, that's my first thought. Uh, that'll go a long way to preventing incidents from arising. Uh, the second thought would be have a good policy of insurance. Um, I battle insurance companies all the time, um, uh, and have lots of derogatory things to say. Um, but I will say this: uh, those an insurance policy um, is something that a prudent skipper really should have. Uh, not so much because, um, yes, it, it it may very well ultimately pay out on a claim that you have against you, but more importantly. Uh, it'll likely pay for defense costs. It'll pay an attorney to defend you. And that means you don't have to. It means that you can continue sailing and not worry about things for the most part. So those sound perhaps a little sophomoric, but, but from a practical uh, uh, standpoint, those are the first two things I would, I would be thinking a prudent skipper should do if, if I was asked. And I've been asked. So uh, the third thing um, is, 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 I suppose, referencing your, your having someone sign a waiver. I don't want to drill down too far on this, but you know, when you give up rights or when you ask someone to give up rights, you know, there's there's a whole issue of whether those uh, types of agreements are binding, meaning on a consideration basis. Meaning, was what you were offering sufficient consideration for that person to sign? Did they sign with full knowledge? Uh, were they aware of all the risks? We could devolve and do a lengthy discussion on this. Um, I, I think that. Signing a waiver, not a bad idea, but I would probably speak to your local admiralty attorney to make sure that it is worded in a way that's sufficient. And that doesn't mean it has to be chapter and verse and pages long. It, it rather can be just several pithy sentences. I prefer brief um, things in the law as opposed to expansive things. Um, and so I guess those are the three things that I would be offering to the skipper. Um, you know, keep, keep, keep your boat in a seaworthy condition. Every vessel, I called it ship shape, but you know, seaworthy is the, the legal term, and 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 you know it, that is an obligation every vessel owner has. Um, two, have a good policy of insurance, and and by that, and we could talk about that further because I've got some thoughts. But read your policy of insurance. Sit down, understand what it says, and if you don't understand, ask your broker uh, what what this or that means. Why isn't it covering this? And then the third thing would be, you know, the waiver form. Not not a bad idea, but make sure you you, you speak to Admiralty Council. Now, you've been in the business a while. You probably have some good war stories to tell us. Do you have any that you want to share with us? <laughs> well, you know, I, um, I, I think some of the, um, when I think back on, on, on you know, um, legal battles and things like that, many of them I don't like to particularly rehash because, <laughs> because they're, uh, but for attorneys, they're fairly boring uh, discussions about how one did this or that and that won the day or what have you. But I, I think some of the more colorful experiences I had uh, was when I was in New York um, uh, with, with a maritime firm, as I was for what, 10, 11 years, whatever it was, and uh, I would be called out to a vessel. These are big blue water freighters and such uh, to handle various issues that have arisen aboard. Um, and I had the fortune or misfortune of going out on, on these vessels in such instances as where there was a, an arsonist who was loose on a gas-carrying tanker um, in a location that I will um, hold back describing because <laughs> it was, it was, a, 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 it was a, here on the East Coast. But um, uh, that was, you know, we had to interview the crew, and uh, we spent days aboard, and uh, it was very, very, very... Uh, memorable experience. And there were others, too, were going aboard these vessels, and, the, um, and, and you're interacting with the, so many foreign nationals of, di of, of different, uh, different countries, and, and um, the smells from the galley, and, and the different foods you were offered, and the, and the tensions, and the, and the friction between the officers and the crew at times, and, um, and trying to unravel how something happened, or uh, why there was an elision or why someone got injured and interviewing um, uh, crew members using interpreters who probably didn't have an education beyond third grade. And, uh, you know, it was it was uh, th those are the worst stories that that's that stick with me the most, as opposed to uh, trials and depositions where lawyers are yelling at each other or what have you. So I don't know. So these are foreign flag vessels then. Yes. Yes. 
All right. That, explain, I, I understand it, but some real basic nautical laws in the United States, the Jones Act. What does the Jones Act say, and, and how does that affect U.S. maritime uh, commerce? Okay, well, the, it's a good question because uh, it, you hit on something uh, that, um, that I think is, is sometimes easily uh, sailed past without recognizing uh, a distinction in the Jones Act. The Jones Act is, is I describe it as, as, as consisting of two elements. You have the first element being the cabotage laws, you know, the laws restricting trading um, to a certain select class of vessels, essentially those uh, with their keels laid in the U.S. Um, and, and, and so there's that whole um, issue that affects people chartering vessels. And, um, um, and then you hear folks talk about at times as to whether it's still an effective piece of legislation or whether it's, 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 it's time for something new. Um, I have an opinion on that. I'll reserve until asked. And then the second aspect of the Jones Act is the, uh, the, the legislation that protects uh, American workers injured at sea. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it allows sailors, allows crew members um, to uh, pursue compensation from their employers, which was something that at the common law, and I hate that phrase because it took me like two years in law school to figure out what that, anyone meant by that, but under the common law, there is no remedy for a crew member against his employer. And by common law, what we mean is there's no body of case law that allows such a legal action. And so this, this legislation, this second part of the Jones Act, allows a sailor to sue his employer. And you might wonder, well, all right, well, why doesn't he just sue the vessel owner? Well, we all know how elusive um, vessels are. I mean, they, they can be here one day, and then they can sail across the horizon the next day, and uh, that, that can be... Um, problematic for the, uh, the, the injured crew member of limited means trying to un- figure out how to sue some foreign owner or track down the vessel uh, so that it can be sued because that's a unique element of maritime law too. We can talk about how vessels themselves stand um, as an individual would for their debts. But to answer your question, Jones Act, two aspects. One is the cabotage law and one is the, uh, that, that aspect of legislation allowing injured crew members to sue their employers. Documentation. When I documented my boat, I had to fill out a form that showed that it was um, that it was manufactured in the United States. Is that a requirement to have a boat documented in the United States to be a U.S. built boat? I wonder how best to answer that question because it, we're, it, we're we're going into an area. I consider uh, the, the documentation of, of vessels is a very um, specialized area with lots of little uh, ebbs and currents. And that's why, frankly, you find um, a series of like non-lawyers who run these sort of marine documentation type shops to handle the documenting of vessels. And I mentioned that just by way of color uh, as I get to your question. So to answer your question, um, I, I think the way to think about it is that in order to document a vessel, in other words, in order to be a U.S. documented vessel and carry a U.S. flag, You've got to show that the vessel was built in the United States, and there are very form, various formulas and sort of approaches um, which exceed my uh, pay grade uh, as to determining um, how um, or whether a vessel is sufficiently constructed in the United States. In other words, you know, was it how much of it was built here, that kind of thing. Um, I, I, I don't typically get involved in those those types of, of squabbles. What I saw, I, I notice when I'm traveling around in. Turkey in particular, I see a lot of American boats uh, that are owned by U.S. companies and have U.S. documentation, uh, and they're all <laughs> registered in Delaware. So, and in fact, I saw one boat that didn't know how to spell Delaware. They spelled it D-A-L-A-W-A-R-E. So I knew the United States was a flag of convenience for people in Turkey to avoid taxation. So apparently what they do is they come over here, set up a corporation, buy a boat, and then they don't have to pay the taxes in Turkey because it's not a Turkish boat. It's a U.S. boat. And it appears to me that that's the, the entire purpose of doing this. Um, so, and, and a lot of these boats do not appear to be made in America. You know, there's a lot of Benetos, there's a lot of gullets, there's a lot of uh, boats that don't seem to have the 
and and maybe they're not doc, maybe they're not documented. They may be just state registering these boats, which I, I understand is another way of going about it. But when I travel overseas, I it's much easier for me as a documented vessel to clear customs than than I've seen if you're just state registered and clearing customs overseas. Do you have any just general comments on that? Um, I, to work backwards, I think your observation about uh, clearing customs as a federally documented vessel, indeed, I would I would I would share that 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 sentiment with you. I, th- I think that the um, being a vessel of the United States as opposed to a vessel of Mississippi or Alabama or something, you know, it, it makes a difference uh, when dealing with foreign authorities. Um, this is to work further backwards. This is the first time I've heard the United States referred to as a flag of convenience. I think those owners that um, that that register the vessels here may not consider it a flag of convenience, but it's an interesting observation. I have not heard that before, um, so I don't know what's going on. Whether they're, uh, um, I don't, I don't. <laughs> who knows? I have no idea. Because um, typically, when you think talk flags of convenience, there are cer- certain jurisdictions that sort of pop out that you think of um, that that may be associated with that that phraseology, uh, but I don't. I don't know if I've ever, ever heard the U.S. Uh, being uh, referred to um, to in that fashion. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's funny. I, I used to go by these boats and wave at them and say, hi, where are you from? And most of them would never even speak English. So it was, I quit <laughs> doing that. As soon as I saw Delaware on the back of it, I'd say, okay, it's it's really not an American boat. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a tax dodge boat. So, all right. Let's get into some basics. Uh, and when I first talked to you, I, I related some experiences I had with, with salvage law, and I was bringing a boat back from uh, the Newport Ensenado race one time, and we were off the coast of California, and the engine was overheating, so I shut down the engine, I went down below, and I was trying to figure out why the engine was overheating, and there was very little wind, and the other crew member was up on on deck, and another boat from the Newport Ensenado race came by and said, what's going on? I said, oh, the air engine's overheating. He said, do you want a tow? And I get up and I say, well, let me talk to you. Let me, do you want salvage rights? And, of course, he didn't even really know what I was talking about. But he said, no, no, I don't want any salvage rights. Do you want to tow? And I said, oh, sure, as long as we understand that. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I love salvage probably because that's the, the thing that helped pay for my education. So, um, you know, I have a, a particular fondness for the law of marine salvage. I like if you're a capitalist, if you believe in the capitalist system with all its foibles, then you ought to love salvage because salvage, um, the philosophy of it, the mechanism of it is that, look, uh, we're not going to pay you time materials uh, to save something from loss to the ocean. Uh, we're going to pay you an award, a bounty, um, um, an accelerant to get you off that couch in bad weather and out to your boat to risk your own property and your own life to help somebody else. Uh, and it's been, I would, I would say it's been a wonderful success uh, if you go back um, as far back as the Byzantine times. It seems that, you know, it's really encouraged um, the, the saving of property and, and vessel from, from loss to the sea. Uh, that's by way of background because I think so often um, salvage is given sort of a black eye. And, and, and let me add to that one other bit of background, and that is, 99.94% of the time, um, a salver does not get your boat um, in, 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 as its reward. It gets a bounty. Um, it gets a, a, a reward, which typically is a small per, or a, a, a percentage, I should say. Sometimes it's small, sometimes it's large, uh, of the value uh, of whatever was brought back to port. Meaning, um, a salvage award is calculated as a percentage typically of the post casualty value. Um, so just my point in these two prefatory remarks are that salvage is not a bad thing. Now, to go to your scenario, you were wise to, to ask that because um, um, the other vessel would have had to, I would argue, answer truthfully to that request. You asked them, are you going to make a claim of salvage against this vessel? They responded no, and so what you were expecting and what you were entitled to was a tow, uh, not a claim of salvage after the event. Um, but let's talk about when a claim of salvage arises, if you want. Um, 
a claim of salvage, there's, it's a two-legged animal. The first leg is, do you have a salvage claim? And the second leg is, well, what's the claim worth? Um, and so for the prudent skipper, I, I'd suggest that uh, the first element of do I have a salvage claim is a relatively low threshold. Um, uh, you know, all you have to show is that the vessel was in danger or in imminent danger. It doesn't have to be an actual danger. Um, that you rendered services uh, voluntarily, meaning you hadn't agreed to come out there and help uh, if, if there was any issue, it's that the voluntary element really never comes into play for the most part. Um, uh, it means that you, you can't have a pre-existing obligation to help. I guess that's what it means. And you know, a good example is a crew member typically cannot make a salvage claim because there are some exceptions, but typically the crew member has a pre-existing duty to save the damn ship. So you, you can't then say, well, I bailed and, and saved the ship, so I'm entitled to a salvage claim. No, you can't because you, 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 you don't have that voluntary element. So you've got to have a vessel in danger or imminent danger. You've got to have a, you, you, voluntary uh, services, meaning no pre-existing obligation, and you've had to have had some success in your endeavor. In other words, doesn't have to be you don't have to you don't have to be the one that brings the boat back to the dock, but you have to be the one that at least contributes to the boat coming back to the dock. So those three elements: danger, no pre-existing obligation, and success are, are, are what we look at to decide whether you have a salvage claim. And again, so often I see insurance companies and angry vessel owners. You know, arguing those three elements, saying, oh, this didn't happen, that didn't happen. You know, okay, let's just, sometimes if you just step over that and look at the next element, which is, well, what's the salvage worth? That sometimes is a much better area to attack if you're trying to defend against a salvage claim. Um, because when, when we're looking at this second element of what makes, you know, what, how, how do you determine the award that a salver should get, you will see all kinds of case law speaking to this. It's a very amorphous area. Um, but I think there are probably some, 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 uh, some truths you can pull out of it, which is every salvage typically stands by itself. You know, there's always, it's so factually driven that, um, in, you know, you, you have to, it, it's hard to compare uh, uh, other salvages with, uh, with each other, although it's done because there's really no other way to sort of divine what the award ought to be. Um, but there is a case called the Blackwall, and there is a, a really readable um, international treaty um, called the uh, International Convention on Salvage. Uh, it's out of the IMO 1989, so it's the International Maritime Organization. And I really suggest Googling it or using the search engine of your choice. Uh, my wife's an intellectual property attorney, so she's taught me to use to try and not use such terms as Googling and, and use uh, <laughs> use other more uh, neutral phrases. But but, uh, but use the internet search engine of your choice to, to get a copy of that. Uh, Salcon 89 is, is, the, is the code name for that uh, document, that, that convention, that international convention on salvage. Salcon, S-A-L-C-O-N 89. Okay. I'm going to write that down and, and put a link to it in the show notes. So I'll make sure I do that. Yeah, it's really readable. It's, a, it's, it's, it's nicely written, it's short. But if you look at Article 13 of that, it sets out about a dozen, half, what, ten, ten, ten elements that um, the trier of fact, the judge, the arbitrator, whoever is deciding the case ought to look at to decide whether the award is, is due and to decide how much, excuse me, how much the award should be. And, and those elements would be the degree of danger that the vessel was in, uh, uh, how prompt the salver arrived on scene. Was there any other assistance available or was this vessel uh, beholden to this, this salver who'd come out uh, on this dark and stormy night to help. Uh, those types of issues are looked at um, and, and discussed by the court in deciding um, how much the award ought to be. So in summary, salvage um, consists of analyzing whether you are entitled to make a salvage claim, which depends on um, whether you have danger, voluntariness, and success, and then the next element is looking at, okay, well, what's the salvage award? How much should the salver get? And that looks at a various issues, a very, such as what did the salver do, how much danger was the other vessel in, et cetera. Um, and I guess there's a form that I've read about called the Lloyd's Open Form. Are you familiar with that form? And, and, uh, and I, my understanding is, of course, most recreational boaters would never even have this form on board. I guess it's in Reed's Nautical Almanac, though. 
The way I, I understand the Lloyd's Open Forum is it's an agreement that if you're successful, you might you have a salvage claim. If you're not, there's nothing to claim. Is that right? Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. first of all, I am familiar with the form, and it, those forms typically are a no-cure, no-pay arrangement, right? So if they don't achieve success, then they're not entitled to anything, and that's, that's you know, that's an incentive for all parties at that point. And, the, you know, and, and um, you know, the Lloyd's form you may see um, overseas, you typically won't see that form in the recreational or even light commercial sector in the United States, but you will see no cure, no pay salvage contracts. You will see salvage contracts that are that have the name standard on them and such other titles. Um, the important thing to remember um, is that just about every salvage contract I've ever seen really doesn't hurt the vessel owner. And I'm probably a little biased here, but I am trying to look at it objectively. All it usually does is 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 it articulates at the end of the day. For the most part, it articulates, spells out how the salvage award will be resolved if there's a dispute. And then it has, you know, payment terms and things like that. But I think oftentimes I hear vessel owners are so scared to, to um, you know, not scared, hesitant, whatever the word might be, cautious, uh, to, in, 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 to sign a salvage contract on a no-cure, no-pay basis. And, and I often think, you know what, it's, if, you know, really, really I don't see the, the disadvantage um, oh, they're, you know, they, you know that, that's a decision the vessel owner should make, but I, um, you know, that's, that's my two cents on it. Okay. I was uh, at an at a anchorage. I was, ha- I was smelling diesel oil out of my uh, engine one day, and I was, we were sailing up in Croatia, and I was sailing to a, pretty much an, an isolated island. And as I pull into the island, I'm smelling more and more diesel, and I'm, and I'm trying to figure out where's the smell of diesel coming from. And uh, I anchor, and I go into the engine room, and I start feeling around the the engine line. And as I'm feeling around the engine line, the um, the line that goes from the filter to the injector breaks mm-hmm. in my hand. So it's a steel line, and I don't have the spare part on board. And um, I said, "Well, I'm sort of stuck here. I can't start the engine." Uh, I'm in this uh, this place where there's nothing around except an anchorage. Fortunately, I had a cell phone, and I called up my insurance company, and, and I said, in a part of the insurance contract is there's a tow clause in the contract. Mm. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm stuck here. I'm without an engine. I'm not in any danger. Um, do you want to get a tow out to take me to the next town so I can get this fixed? I said, because I said, well, you know, because it could deteriorate. I could be in danger at some point in time, and it could deteriorate. But right now, I'm not in danger. And they got back to me and said, well, we we can't really find somebody that wants to come out within a reasonable, uh, you know, at a reasonable price. Because it was, you know, it was 15, 20 miles away from this next harbor over on sure. uh, another place. And, and they said, well, can you sail there? And that's exactly what I ended up doing. I said, okay, I'll sail there, but I'm going to need somebody to help me get into the dock when I get there. And the next day there was very, very light air. And it's frustrating to sail in light air, as you well know. Mm. But slowly but surely I sailed across and over to this uh, town. I'm trying to remember the island. Uh, it doesn't matter. But uh, And as I got there, there was a, a mechanic there in a dinghy that helped me get tied up. And they, the insurance company basically did a great job in arranging with the mechanic to fix the problem. Of course, I had to fix the problem. They didn't cover the cost of that, but they made sure that I got into a dock and they aligned, they, they found a mechanic that could fix the problem over in this town. Now, the insurance company was pantaneous, and I thought, well, that's what I like the insurance company for. You know, I don't necessarily need to make a claim, but they were there to help me when I needed that. I don't know if you have any comments on that, but my question is when you have a tow clause, when you pay somebody for a tow, they're pretty much excluded if it's a, a hire for tow from salvage claim. Is that right? Yes, I think that's a, a generality I would sign on to with the caveat, because I am a lawyer, that you know, circumstances can change so that the tow could turn into a salvage. There would be that. We could all come up with those types of circumstances that might occur in that regard. But you're right. If you've contracted for a tow, then that's, that, that, would, that would largely exclude a claim of salvage. A couple other questions I want to just go over. What is the importance of keeping a log on a sailboat? Is, is there 
Uh, I heard in an interview with Lynn Party that they always made a comment in their log or in their journal that they put out their anchor light every night. So if somebody came in and bumped into them uh, in the night, if they hadn't have shown that they regularly turned on the anchor light or put out an anchor light, that there's sometimes that the person would say, oh, there's no anchor light on. But they said, well, we have a leg to stand on because we show it in our log every night that we turned on our anchor light. Any, you know, is that a legitimate claim or not? Yeah, I mean, I, I like that. I, I like that because whenever um, in a legal dispute uh, you can point to a practice and procedure and then have some documentation to support that position, it helps the trier of fact who might be a jury or a judge. Typically in a maritime uh, case, if it's brought under admiralty law, you, you may have just a judge deciding the case. Um, but you will have th those types of, of that, that type of evidence will go a long way to supporting your position. So back to your question about logs on boats, you I mean in certain instances there are going to be requirements to keep a log. Uh, but I, I keep a log because I, I think I probably think along the same lines, which is that um, you know it, it creates a record of what I'm doing and when I'm doing it when I'm diligent about it. Uh, uh, and and so I, I think that can help you uh, downstream in, in a certain situation. Uh, for instance, um, let's go back to the salvage situation. You've 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 contacted somebody. A salver comes aboard and says, "Yeah, I can help you, but it's going to be a salvage claim." And you tell him, "No, I, I won't agree to salvage," um, which you don't have to as a vessel owner. There's also a misconception that you somehow have to to concede to salver's demands. You don't have to. Um, and so ultimately, the salver says, "Okay, we'll give you a tow." Well, if you had a logbook, you could write in there at 1,600 hours, I uh, contracted for a tow, um, and, and that would be a piece of evidence that would support um, that endeavor. You know, it's also good to, you know, indicate when guests come aboard, when they leave. Uh, you know, um, um, yeah, I think there's just a lot of handy, practical uh, benefits to keeping a log. All right. I've never been a big log keeper. I think I'm going to start trying to do that in the future. Yeah. <laughs> It's tough, I think. I think I I got it from my commercial days, so I think I got used to it back then doing it. So I don't I don't know. I sort of scroll. The, the idea is you can't be neat about it. I think you just have to be, you know, you just have to get it in there. That's the key. Is there any other areas that you think you want to talk about before we close out this interview? Well, you know, I um, I think the only thing I, that's what would catch my ear perhaps would be the 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 insurance side, and that is just. You know, read read those policies and make sure that 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 you know what, what, that it, for instance that they cover salvage. Uh, I've seen some policies that provide for uh, different terminology and with a cap. And you don't want to be in a position where you've got a big claim coming down the pike for a salvage that was successful, and you don't have uh, the coverage maybe you ought to have. Um, so to give that a read, and 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 I think that applies to such mundane things as. Marina contracts too, you know. I mean, um, I know how painful it is to read that stuff, but um, it's it's worthwhile, you know, reading it. If you have a question, send it over to your insurance broker by email. So, hey, you know, just want you to let you know I've, I've signed on in this marina contract. Hope it doesn't impact my insurance, or let me know if it's a problem, um, because that'll go a long way toward preventing your insurance company from trying to decline a claim um, because of some term that you agreed to in your uh, marina contract. Um, so, um, and then that one other thing I think probably we ought to mention just in the sake of being formal uh, about it, we talked about the Jones Act, but just remember the Jones Act relates to injury claims, but you know, there are several remedies for the injured crew member. Um, and, and if I can have just two minutes, I'll just quickly go through them. Um, and so when we talk about injuries aboard, you're going to have essentially two types, two classes of people that will be injured aboard a vessel. You'll have crew, and you'll have passengers. Passengers are entitled to just a, 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 a reasonable standard of care. Um, so um, that, that, that's just basically a negligent standard. Nothing too fancy with respect to passengers. And I'm leaving out various things like the Death in the High Seas Act and all that. Just, just simple stuff here. So um, reasonable care, uh, negligence claim for, for passenger. Crew members, though, they have the Jones Act that you mentioned. They have um, an unseaworthiness claim, which is a, a remedy that a crew member, only a crew member can bring, uh, in which they claim that the vessel they were working was unseaworthy. It was not fit to accomplish the mission uh, that it was on. 
Um, and it could be something as transient as leaking hydraulic fluid onto a deck that the crew member slips on could render the vessel unseaworthy. It's a warranty issue, which has various legal ramifications. So you have Jones Act, you have uh, the unseaworthiness claim, uh, you have a general negligence claim that they could bring, uh, and then you have um, maintenance and cure, uh, which would be a daily stipend and medical care owed to a crew member by a vessel owner. Um, so I just wanted to mention sort of the whole gamut of, of remedies available to crew members because um, I, I, we weren't complete by just speaking about the Jones Act, I guess, is the best way to put it. Well, that brings me to a question that I want to go over uh, relating to that. You know, I, I've raced on boats, and I'm sure you have as well. And it's a voluntary race. Are we considered crew when we oh. are actively working as a crew on a boat, or are we passengers in that situation? That is one I'm going to, to, to waffle on, but I will say this. Um, the, the, the problem typically in those types of situations is you don't have the duration element that, um, that is required when analyzing whether someone is a, a Jones Act crew member. Um, so the, the, um, um, the, the, one of the big areas of litigation when you have a Jones Act claim is, okay, well, is he a Jones Act sailor? Is he entitled to these these special remedies that Congress has afforded? And that's a, a test that you go through looking at various factors, um, such as duration of employment, uh, what type of things the criminal was doing, etc. I seem to remember in some tired neuron here that that there is a case where they were treated as Jones Act sailors or they were entitled to crew member status uh, even though it was a recreational racing vessel. Um, and I, I, if you have me on again, I'm going to have an answer for you. Okay. <laughs> and that's a good thing to have as well, because now I'm thinking of my, my guests that I have on my boat. I often refer to them as crew, even though, you know, I can sail the boat without their help. But I may want to specify in my, in my, um, you know, in my document that I have them sign that they, uh, they agree that they're passengers who may choose to engage in running the boat, but they're not crew members. I guess that might be a way to dot my I's and cross my T's on my, my liability waiver that may or may not hold up in court. Yeah, and, and, you know, it may be that you speak to your insurer about that, too. You say, hey, look, this is the form I'm using. Do you have any, do, do your in-house attorneys have any thoughts um, on, on how I might spiff it up? Or is this, is this you like this? Okay, all right. John, I really appreciate your time, and I'd like to get you back again. If you have some good ideas you want to talk about, get a hold of me. We'll do some more interviews, and I will uh, just want to say thank you so much for your time. You know, it's been a pleasure, and I, I, I'm particularly grateful for, for being asked, and, and I enjoy your podcast, so it was a joy to be, be aboard, I guess, is the expression to leave you with. All right, and I'm going to put links to your website and also the material you gave me. Uh, on the Salcon 89. Salcon 89. 89. And any other areas that I should just give links to in the, in the show notes on this that you think of? Well, um, I'd like you to give a link to my small book that I wrote called A Swim. Oh, we were going to talk about that. Let's talk about your small book. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't uh, received it yet. You said you sent me a copy, but I have not received it. So let's talk about your small book. And, and uh, you're an author. You're a published author as well. So let's talk about the book you wrote. Well, it's very kind. I will take 20 seconds of your time. It's an interesting story for anyone that's spent any time on the water and uh, may or may not like wearing life jackets. A fellow um, uh, fell off his boat. He was aboard. Um, it was a little um, open uh, runabout, uh, outboard powered. He fell off um, in, in uh, Block Island Sound, which is a decent a area of, of the ocean out there. It's fairly desolate. And it was uh, coming up on nighttime. This was in 2012. And um, uh, the, his boat continued onward without him. It's sort of the, the horror of every uh, sailor. And the story intrigued me, and I found him, and we, we, um, we sat down, and, and, and he let me interview him for this story. And it formed the, the basis of a swim, which is a sort of a, a linear um, uh, uh, discussion of how events unfolded um, uh, uh, interspersed with sort of anecdotal um, descriptions of other 
famous and not-so-famous folks that have fallen off vessels and lived and not lived to tell about it. And, um, um, and it, was, it was fun to write, and it's nice as a lawyer to have something else to hand out or talk about aside from uh, the boring law. So um, it's available on Amazon, and it's not an ebook yet, but I need to get my act together and, and turn it into an ebook. And uh, it, it's, it's, uh, I, I encourage those to uh, pick it up and give it a read. It's a quick read. It's not very big. So I can find a link for it by searching Amazon, right? In yes. your name, right? Okay. Yes. I'll put a link to that book as well in the show notes. I'm uh, grateful for that. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Let's All keep right. in Listen. touch. Happy holidays. Thanks again. Be oh. well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I forgot to mention, <laughs> my wife was in an automobile accident uh, on the 18th of December. She's okay, but she's in a little pain. She was rear-ended. She was stopped at a stoplight on State Street at 45th South, heading north after work. She works at a hospital. She's a newborn intensive care nurse at a hospital. And a woman in a big 4 by 4 I think it was a Ford truck with a big steel grill on the front of it, changed lanes and slammed into the back of her going full blast. Pretty much demolished the rear end on the RAV4 that I drove all the way across country to bring it to her last year. And it's in the shop right now. Initial estimates are about $14,000 worth of damage on the vehicle. We had to take my wife to the hospital. Uh, she definitely had a concussion from it. We don't know how long it'll take, but she's out and about. But it was a lousy way to start the Christmas season because we had my daughter and my grandchildren out staying with us and uh, made it a little more difficult over the Christmas season. for. But anyway, we're getting along fine. I hope you had a great Christmas season, a great holiday season. And again, if you have any comments on the podcast, drop me a note. If you have suggestions, let me know. Go to the iTunes directory and write a review, if you would, for me, and tell your friends about it. Thanks for listening. Get out there and go sailing. Joe? Do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. Made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be ten years from now, you know? <laughs>